Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 18 through 22. Let's read together. I'll read, you follow along. While walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their net and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Followers and fishers. Let's pray before we preach. Father, thank you for being here. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your holy word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Now would you speak to us through your word? And would you give us grace to be obedient to whatever you say? We thank you for it in Jesus' name. All God's people said... Amen. So first of all, we want to see today the call to follow and become fishers. The main idea here is that Jesus calls us personally and corporately. As disciples of Jesus Christ, you know, the church is made up of us. We are the church. Amen. We're the, we're the local church here at True Life Church, but all the, the disciples collectively make up the church, Big C Church, the body of Christ. And the same great commission for his disciples are, is the same great commission to each and every one of us. It's the same great commission collectively to the church. So we are, uh, you know, personally and corporately to be followers of him and fishers of men. Notice the power of that call. I mean, have you thought about this? He, he called them. He said, follow me. I will make you fishers of men immediately. You know, what is this all about? What was this? Was there like a, a tractor beam or something? You know, Jesus said, follow me. And they just, what, what was this all about? Or, or is this some kind of Jedi mind trick? You know, he's the master and they, he says, you know, this. And they just leave everything and follow him. What's going on here? Well, I think it's helpful if we know some of the historical background, Ray Vanderlein writes a lot about this from the Jewish perspective, the Jewish mind. And then uh, J.D. Greer, the president of Southern Baptist Convention, did a great job of outlining this for us. So I want us to look at some things about the historical background. First of all, all Hebrew boys in those days went to what they called Torah school. Torah is the word for the Hebrew word for the first five books of the Old Testament. So Genesis through Deuteronomy. And so they, all the boys went to Torah school. And uh, you started at, at about, about age five. You know, you went to Torah school. They would take these, many of them poor boys, and they would drop honey on their tongues and read to them out of the Torah, beginning with Genesis. And so the idea was 
this, this word is going to be sweet to you. Maybe they'd never heard, tasted honey before, you know. And this word is going to be sweet to you. You're going to learn to eat it. You're going to learn to hunger for it. You're going to learn to live on the word of God. And so for the next five years, they memorized large sections of the Torah. And some of them would just, you know, memorize the whole thing. And so by the age of 10 or 12, they had kind of a weeding out, you know, the first cut. And so the first cut, about, about uh, you know, the upper 20% or so made the cut. And so the rest of them, notice this, the rest of them would go back to their families back home and would become apprentices in the family business, whether it was fishing or carpentry or whatever it was. And so the boys who remained who would, would study on until about age 17 where they would learn the rest of the Old Testament as we know it today, you know, basically Joshua through Malachi. And so, and then there was another cut. And so if you wanted to continue on in the study of the Torah and become, a, a, you know, a specialist, then you had to find yourself a rabbi. Rabbi, word rabbi in Hebrew is just the word for a teacher, okay? You had to find yourself a teacher. So you would go, and, and, and it had to be, you know, you, you wanted to get the teacher that, that, that you had a lot of respect for, you wanted to become like. And so you would go and you would sit at your, at your rabbi's feet, and that was your application. So then that rabbi would test you. He would question you. He would examine you for, with a series of questions to find out if you were worthy to be their disciple. Okay? And so you see the rabbis could be really selective. They, they, because in those days, becoming a religious leader was like the best of all possible jobs that you could do. Almost every Hebrew boy dreamed of becoming a religious expert one day. You know, it wasn't... Uh, you know, being a Kobe Bryant basketballer or a rock star or, or, or uh, you know, a, a Pro Bowl or, or Super Bowl uh, quarterback or something like that. They dreamed of becoming religious experts, rulers of the Jews. And so the rabbis could choose only the smartest, only the most talented boys to be in their, uh, to be their Talmud. The word Talmud is, is just pupil or, or, or disciple. These Talmud. And so, you know, to be in their Talmudim, the plural for disciples. And so they were choosing someone that they believed had the capacity to become just like them. Not just to know what they knew and follow their teaching, but who, who could do what they did. And for several years, these Talmudim would follow around their rabbis. They'd follow them closely, imitating them in every way, their mannerism, how they were answering certain questions, how they would, uh, you know, deal with certain situations. And so, supposedly, what we read is that the highest compliment you could, play, you could pay a Talmud, a disciple of one of these rabbis, was to say to them, the dust of your rabbi is all over you. Now, that wasn't like saying, you, you need to go take a bath. The idea was, hey, you're doing a great job following your rabbi. 
You're following him so closely. You're doing everything he's doing. You're learning everything he's saying, seeing everything he's doing, and you're applying it in your life. You, you, got, his, you got it all over you. You're just like your rabbi. So, and in Jesus' day, there was real, a really rare form of rabbi who possessed a characteristic that the Jewish people called, and, and the Hebrew word is smicha. Smicha. You want to say that? Smicha. Okay. It just means authority. Okay. So these rabbis, these special rabbis had authority. And so um, we only know of about a dozen that were recognized as Smicha rabbis in the first century when Jesus lived. If you know anything about Jesus, uh, excuse me, Jewish history, you might recognize names like Hillel or Gamaliel. You know, you remember Saul studied under Gamaliel, okay? So there were a few of these rabbis, only about 12 or so. And so these guys were, first of all, masters of the Torah, the first five books of the, uh, first five books of the Bible. They were mystical, and they had this special authority, this, authority, this smicha, to make new interpretations. You see, most of the teachers were Torah teachers. They were Torah rabbis, but they didn't have that smicha necessarily to be able to, you know, to make new interpretations like these smicha rabbis did and to make legal judgments on the law. And so, um, you know, even in, in, in Matthew chapter 7, a little bit after where we're looking this morning, you see something about that. You see how Jesus had smicha. He had authority, not like the other teachers of the law. So a couple other things here. To be regarded as a rabbi with smicha, there had to be evidence that you had done miracles. Credible evidence. Finally, smicha had to be officially conferred upon you, like in an ordination, by two other rabbis with smicha. So this was, you know, this was a really exclusive club. It's hard to get into. Now, back to our, our text, Matthew 4. Here comes Jesus, who knows the Torah so well that at age 12, you know, in the temple, he was correcting the rabbis there, asking them questions. So he knew the Torah very well already. And... Uh, you know, just, just at age 12. And so he frequently says things when he's teaching, you know, after he takes on his ministry and begins teaching and, and, and the like. He says things like, you have heard it said, but what? But I say to you, indicating, you know, his hearers are constantly amazed at his authority. This smicha he has. And so... Uh, you know, they were amazed because he taught them as one with, and the Hebrew word again is smicha. He taught them with smicha, authority. Not like the other scribes who just repeated what everyone else had said. So in Luke 20, for example, they, they're saying things like, where did you get your smicha? Who conferred it upon you? We need to know he's doing all these miracles. Matthew 4, 23, the verse right after our text this morning, was to say, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. 
I'd say that's pretty verifiable, you know, pretty evident on the miracles, wouldn't you? Right before this account in Matthew chapter 4, earlier in the chapter, Jesus goes out into the wilderness where John the Baptist, you know, is baptizing. And uh, the camel skin wearing, uh, you know, locusts and honey eating prophet preaching in the wilderness who was a teacher just dripping with smicha sauce, right? I mean, it was all over John. If there had ever been one, he had smicha all over him. And, uh, and, he, and, and so he, he tells everybody that's listening, hey, there's someone in this crowd. And he points to Jesus eventually and says, I am not even worthy to unloose his sandals. That's what John the Baptist said. This John the Baptist that was full of smicha, authority from God, right? Now, uh, you know, and then at that same moment, the same event, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I mean, you know, the, the smicha ind- indicator on the dashboard ought to be going ding, 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 ding. Smicha! He's got smicha! He's got authority! You know? Um, and so. You know, here in Matthew 4, notice what happens here. Matthew 4, he says, Jesus, this new rabbi, who's, you know, got Smecha all over him, chooses Simon Peter and Andrew, his brother, who are what? Fishermen. But what does it tell us, that, uh, uh, you know, what does the fact that they were fishermen tell us about, I mean, what does that show us? They didn't make the cut. They were the B team. You see? And so he skipped over all the A players and went straight for the B players. Now, the point is, you know, you need, we need to get this. Of course, they wanted to follow him, right? Of course, they wanted to follow this rabbi with all this smicha who had chosen them, guys without much potential or personal power he chose them to follow him to become like him listen when jesus assembled his force by his choice to transform the world he chose the b team they wanted to they wanted to follow him be like him to know god like he knew god to know the scriptures like he knew the scriptures To do what he did, be filled with his power. Not only the historical evidence, but I want us to see also the takeaways from our text. Let's look at the takeaways from our text now. First of all, I mean, we've already said it. He didn't choose choose the greatest, but he chose the weak. Listen to what John MacArthur says here about about this. In, In choosing his disciples, Jesus skipped all the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens. The powerful were in Rome. He passed over Herodotus, the historian, the historian Socrates, the great thinker, passed over Julius Caesar, the great ruler. He chose men to be his disciples so ordinary that it was comical. 
Not a single rabbi, no teachers, no religious experts, not even a synagogue ruler. Half of them were fishermen. One was essentially an IRS agent, and one of them was a former terrorist. You know, the zealot. He chose the B team because his work in the world would not come from their abilities for him. It would come from what he would do through them. You see, people with a lot of a talent and ability would only get in the way because they would really never really learn to lean into his power. You see, Jesus taught that his power in the weakest vessel was infinitely greater than the greatest talent apart from him. Are you grasping that? Jesus chose the B team. Think about what he said of his followers after, after, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, his followers in comparison to, to John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Now, let's pause right there for a second. Think about that. Not one born among men, women that is greater than this John the Baptist. I mean, you know, if, 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 if Jesus had a hero, you know, prophet, as a, as a young kid, I guess he'd have John the Baptist's picture, you know, put up on his wall. He thought so much of John the Baptist. He, he, you know, he showed honor to John the Baptist as... One of the greatest, if not the greatest prophet up until that time. But then what do you say next? Think about it. I mean, think about it. Abraham, Moses. You know, all, the, all these other great prophets. Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah. All these other prophets. Not one of them is greater than this John the Baptist. But then notice what he says. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he why because those of us in the kingdom of heaven are now filled with the holy spirit of god we have the power that raised jesus from the dead living inside of us jesus said greater are those in the kingdom of heaven than he can you imagine what that did for, for, for Peter? What this rabbi that had called him to himself just said? How encouraging could that be? How encouraging is that to you and me this morning? See, it's not about your abilities, right? We all know that, I hope. It's not all about us. It's about his ability. It's not about what you can do for him. It's about what he can do in and through you. Amen? It's not about how capable you are, but about how available you are to submit to him, surrender him, to depend on him to do in and through you what only he can do. So, he didn't choose the greatest, but he chose the weak. Aren't you glad? I am. Secondly, he chose us, not we him. 
Follow this. Again, J.D. Greer says, Peter, I want you to catch this. Peter lost confidence in Jesus' ability to make him walk on the water, right? He sunk. Where your confidence usually falters is not in the character of Jesus. It's in the promise of Jesus to do through you what he said he would do. You're fully convinced that if Jesus was married, we've been talking about, you know, marriage. If Jesus was married to your spouse, he'd be doing an awesome job, right? But what you're not confident of is that Jesus could use you to become the kind of husband and wife that you're supposed to be. You're confident that if Jesus were raising your kids, he'd be doing a great job. That's not what he promised. He promised that he'd do it through you. Amen? You're confident that if Jesus were at your workplace, he'd be doing a great job at being a witness to your, your, your co-laborers. But that's not what he promised. What he did promise is that he would do these things through you. And when your confidence falters, when life smacks you down, when you fail, when you feel like you're up against insurmountable obstacles in your marriage, with your kids, in your career, in your ministry, what you need to remember is faithful is he who called you, who also will do it. Did you get it? Faithful is he who called you, who also will do it. Amen? God help us to remember that. It's not all about us. It's not what we can do. But it's about the one who called us and the one who is going to perform what he said. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. You know, he, he's looking for fruit from our lives, but he doesn't expect us to do it. He wants us to pray. He wants us to tap into him. He wants to, us to trust, to submit, depend on him, and, and he will do the work through us. He is the one that gives the increase. The point of Jesus saying, I choose you, is not, hey, I'm a Calvinist. I don't have anything against someone being a Calvinist. I'm Calvinistic myself. But the point is, is not that. The point is that if, if I choose you, I'm going to bring my purpose to pass. Amen? So no matter what obstacles you're facing, you can trust my purposes. That's what God is saying to us. No matter how many times your resolve fails, my purposes will never fail. Amen? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perform it, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, 6. He has a purpose. He has a design. He has a plan for you, for us. Isaiah 46, 11, I believe Jesus is saying this to us this morning. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. When he calls us, it is not one bit dependent on, on, on what we are able to bring to the conversation, but rather it is completely dependent 
on him, on what he's able to do to bring it to pass. We have to trust in that. We have to be confident in that. We have to take encouragement from him, from his word, and from his design, his purpose. Amen? Thirdly, the call is to follow. Right? What do you say? Follow me. So the call is to be with him. To follow him. Get dust all over us. Following him. Being with him. Staying close to him. Learning from him. That's what being a disciple is all about. Right? Following him. We're his pupil. He's our rabbi, our master teacher. Listen, the only way that, that this is going to happen in your life is if you really get to know God. The only way you can really get to know God is if you spend time with him. I mean, how do you, how do you get to know anyone, right? You spend time with them. How are you going to get to know your wife? How are you going to get to know uh, your friends? It's not just being in the same room. There's got to be some communication going back and forth. You spend time with them. The only way you're going to get, spend time with him is in the word and in prayer and in worship. The disciplines of a disciple. In the New Believers class, I tell people the same thing that my mentor, Clyde Cranford, told me. What's our long-range goal? Our long-range goal is to know God. Think about it. Because if we, know, if we get to know him, what's going to happen? You can't help but love him more. And the more you love him, what's going to happen? You're going to obey him more. Right? Why? Because he said, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. So the long-term goal for us is to get to know him. And when you get to know him, you'll love him. When you get to love him more and more, you'll obey him more and more. Does that make sense? So that's our long-term goal. What about the short-term goal? Our daily goal is to spend time with him. How are you going to get to know someone to reach the long-term goal? You're going to do it by spending time with him. That's the short-term goal. Because spending time with him, that's, going to, that's how you're going to get to know him. And if you want the dust of your rabbi to be all over you, then you're going to have to have his word saturate you so that it becomes what you eat, what you drink, what you sleep, like those boys learning the Torah. What, you, what dominates your thinking, your living, your actions, your reactions. You memorize it, you think it, you talk it, you quote it. When light cuts you, you bleed it. The Word of God is life to us. Listen, you cannot get to know Jesus any more than you know His Word. Let me say that again. You cannot know Jesus any more than you know His Word. You spend time in His Word. You spend time in prayer. You get spending time with Him. Number four. To follow, you must leave all. Verse 20 and verse 22. I mean, immediately. Isn't that what we see there? Immediately. They left what? Their nets. They left their, the boat and their father. This signifies that we must be willing to leave our security. 
and even the, the, the most significant relationships that, that we have in order to go where he sinned and do what he says. Now, honestly, most of us will not have to lose or leave our, fa our fathers and mothers like these guys did. Drop their whole vocation necessarily. But some of us will. Some of you might. What, what does Jesus call you to do? Young people? It might mean, you know, risking being called a, a, a V, you know, a virgin. or You're a Jesus freak or whatever they're going to say. Same thing in, in the places that you work. What's somebody going to say about you? Are you willing to leave all that? Are you willing to let that just roll off your back because you've got a bigger purpose? To follow your master. When Ferris and Jessica Ferris is our middle son, uh, they recently went to Chad for a vision trip in December. They met African Muslims who were faced with the decision that if they followed Jesus, they could lose their families, they could lose their work, they could lose their chance at, at education, they could, they could lose their children and their wives back to her father because now if you're considering following Jesus, you're an infidel to, to Islam or you could just you lose your life. Those are, those are the kinds of things that they face in these kinds of places. I remember when we announced to our families that we were going to follow Christ to Africa. Teresa's dad was again it. He couldn't understand how we could take those grandchildren over there halfway across the world. That's a hard thing. <clears throat> Later, I'm, I mean, I said that as, this at his funeral. You could, you could ask Teresa's mom about this. I'm not saying anything that I've not said in front of her. But... Uh, at his funeral, I said I made the statement that that was the case. But later on, I believe he accepted it and was actually uh, you know, proud of us for uh, seeking to do God's will. But I, I, but if 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 you were to ask my children today, and, and I know this because I asked them this past week in a text, and I didn't get all of their responses and 
Brianna gave me hers, but she did it verbally. I said, you, got, you need to write it down for me. You know, that's what. But I asked them this question. I said, I said, if you were asked this question, was it unfair for your parents to take you away to Africa? What would, what would you say? Carabeth said, I, I love the life you gave us. And I wouldn't change a single detail of it. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through this. Um, she said, I've been richly blessed by your obedience. Alita, our oldest daughter, said, I'm so thankful for the experiences and examples I received growing up. Because I, I had the opportunity to see how authentic faith leads to radical obedience. In all kinds of situations. Zach, our oldest son, said, You showed us what it means to love God, love one another, and love those who have never heard the gospel. I would not trade what God gave me through your faithful obedience. So it may, it may mean that, that you have to be willing to leave things behind to go where God sends you. Number five, the call is to reproduce, is to multiply. We've been talking about multiply. Fishers of men, he, he said, follow me and I'll do what? I'll make you. Fishers of men. But notice even here the point is not follow me and be fishers of men. I mean he does call us to that. That's not the way he put it. He said follow me and what? I will make you fishers of men. Still that dependence, that humility, that submission, that dependence on him to do in and through us what only he can do. Just as he is a fisher of men so he calls us to be fisher of men. It's not just for a few of us. Not just for the pastors, not just for the missionaries. It's for disciples. For all of us disciples. John 5, 15, 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. How are you going to prove to be his disciple? You're going to... Bear fruit spiritually. You're going to reproduce spiritually. Which means that if you're really his disciple, this is going to be a part of your life. And if you're not reproducing spiritually, then you have good reason to question whether or not you're actually being his follower. Are you actually his disciple? Because to be his disciple means that you make disciples. That's what he called us to be and to do. Be a follower. Be a fisher of men. I'll make you to become fishermen of men. Listen, the great commission that Jesus gave to us was Matthew 28, 19. We've, we've looked at it several times recently. This is the last thing he said before he ascended, which carries the significance that it's, it's the most important command that he gave. When you're about to go away, you, you're thinking of the most important things. And, and so he said to them, go and make disciples. Of all the nations. And as we've pointed out in 19 and 20, going, baptizing, and teaching are participles. 
They're all flowing out of the central main imperative verb. The only imperative verb in that command is to make disciples. Which means that all of the going, the baptizing, the teaching, it's all centered in that. Yes, we have a lot of ministries here at True Life. But everything that we do in ministry grows out of the call to make disciples. Amen. All these ministries, this is the core of all of it. Yes, we love to show kindness and meet needs wherever we see them. Yes, we want to help the homeless, the the orphan, the underprivileged, the unwed mother, the poor and the suffering, all of those things. But the core of all that as we help them is teaching them about the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ, making disciples. The greatest need in the world is the need for Jesus as Lord and Savior. If we meet all these other needs, but we don't, by God's grace, meet the need of making disciples, introducing them to the one who can save them, forgive them, and give them eternal life. If we don't do that, then really we haven't helped them at all. So, the call to follow and to become fishers of men. Quickly now, the, the, the second point, the New Testament pattern of making disciples. I'm just going to run through this summary. This is a summary of the New Testament pattern for making disciples. I just want to look at, let us look at this for a second. Acts chapter 8. Philip obeyed the Lord to leave the crowds who were coming to the Lord in Samaria and go to a foreign Ethiopian on a desert road to help him to understand the gospel and be saved. I mean, he preached, but he, he wasn't a pastor. He wasn't called necessarily to be a miss, miss, missionary. or He was a disciple. Acts 9, Ananias obeyed the Lord, went to Saul, laid hands on him, commissioned him, and baptized him. Saul became a believer and a flaming evangelist, a flaming missionary, a disciple, helping a disciple. Acts 9 also, and, and, and chapter 11, Barnabas discipled Paul. He took him and introduced him to the apostles in Jerusalem and later went and brought him from Tarsus to Antioch to help teach the, the new Gentile believers there. Acts 16, Paul took Timothy with him and discipled him as a son in the faith. Also, chapter 16, Paul and Silas made disciples of Lydia and her household, her oikos, her network, her influence. Again, in Acts 16, Paul and Silas made disciples of the Philippian jailer and his household. Disciples, helping disciples, making disciples. Acts 18, Paul found and stayed with and worked with Aquila and Priscilla. And discipled them, no doubt. And then in, he, later in the chapter, he took Aquila and Priscilla with him and left them in Ephesus. And the next thing we see is that Priscilla and Aquila are helping Apollos, discipling Apollos more accurately in the way of salvation. Disciples helping, making disciples all along the way. And then in 2 Timothy, when Paul is writing to his son in the faith, 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul challenged Timothy to keep passing on the teaching of other disciples who could teach others. He said, you know, 
The things that you have heard of, of me among many witnesses, the same to com commit to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So Barnabas, Ananias, discipled Paul. Paul discipled Timothy. He told Timothy, disciple other faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Where, if it broke anywhere down the line, where would we be? Disciples. What's, what's the point here? The point is, disciples... Make disciples. Disciples make disciples. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This goes along perfectly with what, how Merriam-Webster divined what a disciple is. The primary definition that he gives for a disciple, look at this. One who accepts and assists in spreading the doctrines or the teachings of another. Isn't that what we're all about? Isn't that what this text is telling us? Follow me. You know, follow and fish. We accept his teachings and we accept the responsibility to assist in spreading those teachings, making other disciples. And then third, notice the metric is obedience. Not knowledge. It's not all about, you know, learning more, knowing more. And that's not to take anything away from what we've already said about knowing God's word. But that, you know, the metric is not what we know. It's what we do. It's what we obey. Matthew 28, 20, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Notice he didn't say teaching them to obey, or excuse me, he didn't say teaching them to know everything I've commanded you. What did he say? He said, teaching them to obey or to observe everything I've commanded you, depending on your translation. John 14, 15, we've already said this. If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. How do, how do you know somebody really loves you? Because they say they know you or say they love you, but there are no actions to back it up? 1 Corinthians 8, 1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Well, let's watch this video by Francis Chan. When I was a kid, we used to play this game called Simon Says. All right, most of us have played that, unless you're really young, because there's no app for it. it, it Simon Says is, uh, you know, you just, Simon Says, pat your head, you know, so, okay, you know, Simon said it. Um, it's just, it was a very simple game, but it's so weird how in the church, Jesus says is a totally different game. If Jesus says something, you don't have to do it, you just have to memorize it. <laughs> you, 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 you study it, you memorize it. You guys, it, it doesn't make any sense, a lot of the things we do. When he tells us to go out and make disciples, and how many people in the, our churches are actually making disciples? But they memorized it. You know, I tell my daughter, hey, hey, Rach, go clean your room. She doesn't come back to me two hours later and go, I memorized what you said. <laughs> you said, Rach, go clean your room. <laughs> I can say it in Greek. <laughs> my friends are going to come over and we're going to have a study on what it would look like if I cleaned my room. 
she knows better than that. And so why do we think we're going to come before the judge one day and quote everything that he said and talk about how much we know? It's just, it's just this black and white stuff. If I just started with scripture, I'd go, here's what I would do. I would start making disciples. So you see, it's not, it's not about what we know. It's about what, what we obey. It's about what we do with what we know. The metric is obedience, not knowledge. James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Disciples. Making disciples. Following him. Fishing for men. I see this all over true life. I really do. I hope, I hope to encourage you a little bit. I mean, I, I, I'm going to name a few things, even name a, new, a few names. But I know I'm going to leave people out because God is working through you. I see this in our youth, in our youth leaders, pouring into our, our students. Some of our youth leaders have been a youth, and now they've come back to contribute, you know, and to, and to, and to make disciples of others, following and fishing. I see it in our children's ministry. Leanne Phillips, Ray Chun's heart to train another generation, all those wonderful teachers and, and assistants that are, that are, you know, on the schedule every month pouring into those children to make disciples, to, to, to teach them how to be followers and how to be fishers of men. I see it in our small groups. Leaders spending time with individuals, helping them to grow and reach others. I see it in the Herald small group. Their vision, along with some of the singles, to start a Bible study. I don't know if you've heard this, but they have a, a vision to start a Bible study on, on the Carson Newman campus and reach students at Carson Newman. I see, I see it in individuals, like Charlie Gibson, for example, who witnesses the guys that he rides motorcycles with. Or Tom Butler teaching at Alps. Or David Nolan sharing his faith with co-workers. I see it in the ESL class where Beth and Michal and others work with internationals on Friday nights. I see it in our Celebrate Recovery ministry, our welcome team, our TLC Go outreach ministries, people plugging in, leaning in, being a part and serving. Why? To make disciples who can make disciples and make disciples and make disciples. But I want to ask you today, what, what about you? What, what about you? I want, to, I want to challenge you to ask yourself, what about me, Lord? Where are you calling me to lean in, to plug in, to serve? Who, who is my one, Lord, that you're calling me to pray for, to look for opportunities, to invite, to share my testimony? To share the good news of Jesus Christ. So, conclusion. Here's some practical ways today to respond. And before I even go into that, let me just say, you know, what's the most important is that you listen to Him. To His Holy Spirit. Whatever He tells you. That's really the way we need to respond. Amen? So, but... I mean, first of all, um, 
and, and this is actually backwards in your outline. I, I thought about this later, and I thought this, this needs to be the first thing, which was the last thing on your outline. But if you're not a believer, I mean, the first thing for you is to turn to Jesus and believe him. I mean, do, do you believe that you are a sinner and have sinned against holy God? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave to give you eternal life, forgiveness of sin? Do you believe that if you call on him, give your life to him, that he'll save you, remove that sin, give you that gift of eternal life? This could be your day. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. This would be a great day for you to come to Jesus. Come talk to us after the service. Talk to someone you trust and have confidence in. Let us help you. Let us minister to you. Let us answer questions if you have questions and help you to understand what that really means to give your life to Jesus and to receive his eternal salvation. Secondly, get into the Word and pray every day. Do you want to have Jesus dust on you? You know? You have to be spending time with Him. You have to be spending time in His Word, time in prayer, time in worship, time with Him to get to know Him. Thirdly, plug into serving in one of our ministries. I mean, we, you know, we, we, do, we say this a lot of times and I mean, it's just a matter of each of us deciding, uh, you know, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I need to plug in. I need, I need to use the gifts and abilities that he's given me. And Lord, show me where. You know, be a part of meeting people where they are and helping them to become fully devoted followers of Christ. We, st we still have children's ministry needs to train this new generation. We, we need teachers and assistants in kid rock class. You know, we've got... A class that's first through fourth grade, we really need to split it into first and second grade and third and fourth grade. We need teachers. We need assistants. We need preschool teachers. Children's ministry greeters. That's a very important ministry. And uh, I don't think it's really hard, but, it, you know, when we have families that come first time and they don't really know what to do with their kids and how, the, how it works, you know, to take them and get them checked in and all that kind of stuff, we need some people to greet them and, and help them with all that. Who's your one? Are you praying for that person? Are you, are you looking for opportunities to reach out to that person? Share your testimony. Share your story. Share the Lord's story. Share with them how much he loves them. Six, listen. Members of True Life Church, Jesus has chosen you. Hallelujah. Amen? He went straight past the A-team and went straight for us. Isn't that great? You know, like, like Jimmy, somebody was just commenting the other day, said, you know, Jimmy said that, you know, we're a church of misfits. That's about the truth of it. I mean, we're all broken. And uh, he chose you. To follow him, to get his dust all over you, you know, to become, by following him, a, a disciple maker, a, a fisher of men. 
What greater cause can you think of in the world than this? To bring him honor and glory by following him and making disciples. Being, being a fisher of men. Seventh, you are empowered by his Holy Spirit to make disciples. To be part of the ministry of true life. To meet people where they are and help them to become fully devoted followers of Christ. So submit and depend on him. Be filled with his Holy Spirit. Let him work in and through you to his honor and glory. Amen? Let me close with this really quickly. Robert Coleman's classic work on making disciples called The Master Plan of Evangelism. He wrote this. When will the church learn this lesson? Preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in, work, in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism. Nor can occasional prayer meetings and training classes for Christian workers do this job. Individual women and men are God's method. God's plan for disciple is not something, it's someone. I'm going to say that last part again. Individual women and men are God's method. God's plan for discipleship is not something, it's someone. And that someone is you as a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple, and it's me. May the Lord help us to follow and fish for men, for people. That's what the, the meaning is. Would you bow with me in prayer?